dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Tracy Thomas from The Stacks. You might recognize The Stacks and Tracy because we talked about Tracy and her podcast a ton on our beloved episode because, um, well, first of all, Tracy is awesome. And <laughs> we just love The Stacks and what Tracy does over there. So we're super excited to have you today, Tracy. Hello. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for having me. I cannot take any credit for the brilliance of the beloved episode because it was all Damaris Hill. She is a genius. And I was as in awe of her while we were recording, as I feel like people are when they listen to the episode. So it was mostly just her being amazing. But I am happy to be here. And thank you for the nice things you said about me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were such a great interviewer and host on your podcast. So you bring out the best of all the geniuses you have on. I'll take that, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to admit that I talk about your podcast all the time, and so when I told my husband that you were coming on our podcast, he was, like, really nervous for me. He was like, are you nervous to talk to Tracy in real life? And I was like, kind of. She's so cool. (laughs) I'm, like, the least nerve-inspiring person on the face of the earth, so don't be nervous. We're going to have a great time. We're talking about one of my favorite books. Like, it's going to be so fun. Your husband needs to chill out. Stop trying to get you nervous. Oh Uh, my goodness. We are talking about one of your favorite books, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, as told to Alex Haley. And I have heard both you and Chelsea talk about this book as being life-changing and inspiring. This was my first time reading it. So I'm curious, Tracy, when you first read it and why why you describe it as life-changing. That's a huge question. To start with, I hope that's okay. It, it is because I'm going to do something that I, I hate when people do to me, which is say, I want to hear why Chelsea, it was life-changing for Chelsea first. <laughs> so I'm going to flip it. I'm going to put my podcasting host hat on and, and change the topic already. Love I want it. you to go first. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah, we've had like brief exchanges, I think, over this book, Tracy, just like the quick mentions of like, I love it. Oh my yeah. goodness. It's so life-changing. And I was really thinking about this question today and life-changing is like a really big, big phrase to use. Um, I do think this book was life-changing for me, but it's not like it just flipped a switch. It's more like it inspired lifelong change. Um, It was an eye-opener that led to more of lifelong changes than just like oh this book changed my life and like now I'm woke or something like that (laughs) Um, that's not how it works but this book was one of the the first anti-racist texts that I read that really um like viscerally and clearly explained and showed whiteness to me without centering whiteness. 
And that was really big. Um, And I think we'll get into that and talk about it. And then in addition to that, this book really changed my reading life. This is maybe the book that made me start reading nonfiction and start reading memoir and biography and historical nonfiction. And because of picking up all of that nonfiction, that has really led to um, a lot of learning for me as well. So those are just a couple of ways that this book um, changed my life, I guess we can say. But I feel like that's scratching the surface and we'll get into it a lot more throughout this podcast. Okay, I'll allow it. I just was curious. I, I just, I, you know, I'm such a curious person. So I will now answer your question, Sarah. Um, <laughs> I read the book for the first time in, well, this is a lie. I was assigned the book to read in high school when I was 17, I believe. I think it was first semester senior year or second semester junior year. I can't remember. And I didn't read it because it's long and the print is small. Um, and who has time for that when they're 17? And then when I was about 22, I want to say, I'm almost sure I was 22, um, I read the book on my own after graduating college, and I just thought it was amazing. And I was so mad that I hadn't read it when I was 17-ish. And it's hard to say what is life-changing for me about the book, but I do know that after I read the book, I understood my relationship to white people totally differently. Um... And I think some of that comes from having, my mother is white. Um, I have a lot of white family, obviously. Um, I went to a predominantly white institution for college. I went to a diverse but predominantly white high school. And so I think that I had this idea of whiteness and racism as being maybe separate. And I think this book started me on the journey of, understanding that those two things, at least in America, are inextricably linked and that there is no racism in America without whiteness and that I could be both half white and also 100% black at the same time. Um, So I think that that is probably like the biggest takeaway as far as life-changingness of this book. I think there's lots of other little things, but I think that that's probably like the biggest thing and that's what it got me started thinking about when I read it at 22. And then I just reread it in October for the Sax Book Club. And I talked about it with Mark Lamont Hill, who is another genius. Um, and rereading it this time, it, it reinforced kind of what I had started thinking about at 22. But now 12 years later, I think that I um, understood it in a deeper way and it made so much more sense and it was sort of like reaffirming that I the work that I'm doing and the way that I see myself in the world and my relationship to whiteness has um, evolved and grown and I think that this book is sort of a north star in the sense that it was something that kind of started guiding me and still sort of guides me though it's very distant and far away and it's not something that I think about every day but when I do think about it I'm like oh yeah like Malcolm X was getting at this, you know, like I can almost always draw the line back to Malcolm X and, and this book. That's so interesting. And I know we'll unpack more of those themes that you brought up, but as a former high school English teacher, and because we kind of pitched this book to our audience as the book we think everyone should read in high school, 
Hmm. I find it so fascinating that you were assigned it in high school and didn't read it because, I mean, I didn't read most of the books I was assigned in high school. I know Chelsea is the same way. And now here we are. We all have book podcasts. <laughs> but I, I'm curious if you think this is a good book to read in a classroom setting or if it was all the more influential because you came to it on your own? Huh. Well, I think probably the answer is no. I don't think it's a good book to read in a classroom setting because I don't necessarily trust teachers to teach the book appropriately. Um, I don't necessarily, I mean, it depends. Like, I think that, I think that if it was a classroom of, you know, mostly black kids or kids of color, if the teachers are black, if, if they have an understanding of the work and the person, then I think, sure, it could be taught really well. But I think to say that everyone should read it in high school, I would say no, because I think that it could be really dangerous. And I think um, I think most people's understanding of Malcolm X is not the true story of who he was or who – I mean, we can talk more about this, and I talked about this with Mark, but – you know, this is a book where he is presenting a version of himself to his audience and it's an autobiography as told to another person. So it's not just that he's writing to an audience, but he's also speaking to an audience. And so there is definitely a performance element of this work. But aside from that, I just don't know that I would say that everyone should read it in high school because I think that you're lending your understanding of the work and what he's saying. It's got to be filtered then through this teacher and also oftentimes through the other kids in the class. And I think that, I mean, I'm sure you guys know, and I remember from being a student that sometimes the kids in the class might latch on to something and that becomes the whole thing about, you know, what a book is about when that really isn't the thing, you know, it's like, oh, they had sex like in Romeo and Juliet. And you're like, okay, like we're going to move past that, you guys. And we're the kids are like, no, we're that. not. Yeah. Like, Shakespeare said bird nest and he was talking about pubic hair. Like, holy shit. So like, I don't, I don't know that a classroom setting is necessarily the best place to read this for a lot of reasons, but I think those would be the two biggest reasons to me. Granted, my teacher who taught the book, Mr. Green, it was my African-American history class. And so he's this like wonderful, so well, like he knows everything about black history. Like he's a freaking genius and I loved him and he did a great job with the book. Granted, I didn't read it, but I remember some of what we were learning about and he did a great job. But I think that he's probably an outlier when I think of most teachers and most schools and, and the book would be my guess. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so I did read this for class, but it was in my uh, master's program. I was getting a master's in literature, and it was in our uh, creative nonfiction class. So it, the focus was very much on what you mentioned, Tracy, about unpacking, like, what does this mean to have this writing style where someone is basically, like, dictating to another person? We've got these multiple layers of, like, filters and what does it mean to tell a story and articulate the truth in the way that you want it in the way that you want people to hear it and I think part of me also thinks that in the classroom a lot of teachers could teach this book and be like that checks the anti-racist box for the year and we're good and then you know, move along, which is like a detriment 
to the the book and a detriment to students and also ignore the fact that it's a masterpiece I just think that this is a literary masterpiece and sometimes uh you can't necessarily access that especially in a high school classroom like I would I don't think I would have been able to appreciate like the writing and the the rhetoric of this book at that age at all yeah I I think that's such a good point I was also interested in the writing piece because I taught for six years AP language and composition, which is all about rhetoric and persuasive writing. And I kept thinking about how this book would be such a fantastic model text for that kind of course, because you can really talk about who is Malcolm X's audience, how is he choosing his particular tone and his diction and like all of those teachery words for this particular audience and also how is he making an argument that is both explicit in some ways but also implicit in others where he doesn't full out say what he's suggesting but you can pick it up and so for all those reasons I think it would make such an excellent text to teach but then you get down to Tracy what you were talking about which is the context And even though I'm not teaching this year, my teacher brain was like, okay, if I were going to bring this into the classroom, how would I defend the choice to parents? As you're saying, Tracy, not every teacher and not every classroom is the right place and person to to bring this book into. Yeah, I think that's right. I also, we didn't get to hear, Sarah, what you thought of the book. Oh, yes. (laughs) So I (laughs) I read it this week for the first time. Um, and I had been wanting to read it since this summer because I had been having a lot of conversations with former students in the wake of George Floyd's death and seeing anti-racist books and literature populating the New York Times bestseller list. I had a lot of former students reach out to me to share their very valid complaints about the curriculum and the environment at the school that I teach at, taught at. Um, And one of the students I met with, a white student, was telling me that she had taken a, I think it was a literature of the civil rights movement class in college. And she started talking about reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. And she was so angry when she was talking about it because reading this book in college she felt completely betrayed by her high school experience like I mean it's it's not like she I I don't think she was naive enough to believe that her school taught her everything and fully prepared her for college but I think reading this book was the first time she felt full-on lied to by her high school and her teachers and that and and I'd never read this book and she was telling me this experience and I I mean having learned more about Malcolm X as an adult than I ever did in high school I I could pick up on what she was was saying but I wanted to experience what she had um, and be able to relate to that a little bit more so this was, I'd wanted to read it for a long time. We picked it for the podcast. I procrastinated, as I always do, and I read it during election week. And I 
was actually shocked by how easy it was to focus on while my brain was otherwise, you know, in a million different places, or really focused on one singular place of election results. I thought the book was so engaging and incredibly illuminating. I also was definitely reading it with my like rhetoric mind of just like, how, how is he coming up with these phrasings? I, and I guess by he, I also mean they, because Malcolm X is speaking it, but Alex Haley is writing and editing that just language that's so accessible and so, um, biting at the same time. So I thought it was pretty mesmerizing. Uh, I remember being so surprised when I picked this up and I couldn't put it down. It's propulsive. I, I, I don't know what I was expecting, I guess, but I wasn't expecting all of the like vivid historical detail and just, um, yeah, I don't know that I expected to like be propelled through the book when I first picked it up. Um, I don't know. Do you think this is a page turner, Tracy? Did you have a similar experience where you're like, I can't put this down? Or did you kind of like take it slowly and process? I'm, I mean, I I read one book at a time always. So I pretty much read as fast. I read anything as fast as I can. Um, the first time I read this book, I remember thinking that the beginning was really slow. The second time I read it, I felt like the beginning was the best part. So I don't know... I, might have just been that I'm younger like I don't who knows but I think it's so good I think it goes way faster than a 500 page book you would think goes um I mean like he's one of the greatest storytellers of all time he's one of the great orator orators of of all time so to I, I was not surprised that it had the rhythm and the flow that it has I was not surprised that the storytelling was so good. Um, I think that that also made me understand why people loved him so much in his life was reading this story and being like, yo, this guy's like so charismatic and great. I'm like, I love him. And I also had seen the movie at least, I don't know, three or four times before I ever picked up the book. So I kind of knew the story I knew about like uh, Detroit Red. I knew that he was a Lindy Hopper. Like I knew that whole thing. I knew he had the white, the white girlfriend. They were robbing. Like I knew the story. Um, but reading it, I still was like, oh my God, I love him. And I probably was also sort of picturing Denzel Washington sometimes. <laughs> Understandable. Um, yeah. But I mean, so I also don't know. I mean, this might be different for you guys, but like, I don't ever remember not knowing who he was. I don't ever remember him not being a name and a figure in my life, like from my dad and being taught about Malcolm X. Cause I know my dad really loved him and respected him and thought that he was really the one. I mean, not that, Mal not that Martin Luther King wasn't great, but I know that my dad felt very strongly and passionately about Malcolm X um, and so I think that I, a lot of the information in the book wasn't new. I think just reading his words and, and his, his word choice and his, um, the way that he puts things together, I think that was what was really exciting, uh, for me. Not that you asked that you asked if it was a page turner, but you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't follow direction. The yeah. <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I'm thinking back 
I mean, I think I only learned about Malcolm X in contrast to Martin Luther King. Like, I, I, I'm pretty sure my history teacher was just like, there was Martin Luther King, and we like what he did. And then there was Malcolm X. And I, I mean, I, like I said, I feel like I had, through other reading, corrected that, like, you know, binary in my mind. But still, the, the story was totally new to me for, for much of the book. And right. yeah, I was completely compelled by it. Right. And I do wonder if, even if this isn't the book to bring into the high school classroom, and maybe it's actually like the book to give students on the way out the door, like, okay, now that you've learned these things in high school, here here's a book to help you unlearn. I do wonder about what you said, Chelsea, about like addressing whiteness. I think that needs to be done in schools, like somewhere, um, because I think that that still isn't really happening in most classrooms. Like white students continue to get to see their lives and stories as the universal experience. I don't know. And I don't know if there's like one book that does that in an accessible way for high schoolers or if that is more just like a reworking of the entire system. Because as you said, Tracy, not every teacher can do it. Well, I also think, I mean, I just want to kind of push back a little bit. And I think that like you're saying that this is something that should be taught in schools to help kids see their whiteness but like I think you should say specifically this should be taught in predominantly white schools for that reason like I think that there's reasons to teach this book to white students around whiteness sure but I also think that this book should be taught if it's going to be taught like to black students it has nothing to do with that and I think it should have nothing to do with that also for white students because I think that they need to see black people as not a tool for their learning, you know? And I think that that is like where it gets sticky. It's like this book wasn't written. I mean, we could talk about why this book was written. And I think there is some of it is, I think he knows why people are reading the book when he's writing it, when they're writing it. But I think that like to, to think that that part of the book is what makes it valuable to teach to students, I think is sort of, you know, I, I don't love that because I think that this book does so much for blackness and for black people and it's such an important text that to recenter it around white students is just sort of like well if that's what we're gonna do then white kids should read dying of whiteness right which is like about white people choosing to be racist over choosing their best interests that and that's what the book is about you know like if that's the if that's the goal for reading the book then they should just white kids should be reading books about that as opposed to taking a book that's about so much more and like drawing that from it. Not that Mm -hmm. it's not there, but like that shouldn't be the reason, you know? Yeah, that makes total sense. And, and I think we see that I've seen that happen. I've, I'm sure done this in my own classroom, bring in books by black authors. And that's the only time where the class has discussions about race, right? And that is hugely problematic. And we talked about this, Chelsea, a little bit when we talked about like The Great Gatsby. Like if you're reading The Great Gatsby in school, you have to talk about whiteness and that book and the white author who is penning these ideas. Um, So I I, I think 
I take your point well, Tracy, and, and I'm, I'm glad you shared that. Yeah. I also think, you know, I don't, I can't remember who said it or where I read it or where I heard this, but someone did say that every book written in America is a book about race. Like that there's a way to teach every single book or to talk about every single book through the lens of race. And I'm sure some people listening now are cringing and being like, oh my God, no, everything's not about race. I don't see race, whatever. But like, you're wrong and you do. Um, And I do, I think that like, you know, you could, I'm not a teacher, so I don't actually know how you could do it, but I'm assuming that you could find a way to talk about race and identity in any, any book, every book any facet of books, you could talk about all sorts of things. Um, so for people out there who are teachers, I guess that might be a challenge to you to consider that when you're approaching the work and not just to talk about race when it's a book that is explicitly about black, white relations in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also just thinking about the, um, since we did, sort of mark this down on our list as like "Mm, a book that we wish um, everyone would read in high school or like that we wish we would have read earlier. I think a lot of that has to do with me wishing just that I had had a better narrative about Malcolm X so that I could have appreciated him more at an earlier age and so that I could have had a curiosity for black history at an earlier age. And that doesn't just have to be on English teachers. And that doesn't mean that this is the one book that can go into the classrooms and like rescue that for for black and white students. And I mean, uh, for a diverse group of students. But that is also a tangent for another day. <laughs> okay. So Tracy, you said about this book that when you first read it, you thought the beginning was slow and then it picked up in the middle and that was the more interesting part and then the ne- the most recent time you read it it flipped so I'm just curious about like a couple of your favorite moments from the text or yeah. maybe maybe a moment that stood out the most recent time you read it okay the moment that stood out the most recent time I read it for sure 100% was the white girl who goes to him and is like how can we how can I help how can I help and he like brings up the story I think three times throughout the text and every single time I'm like oh my god is he writing this right now is it 2020 is he familiar with George Floyd and like does he know what's going on with Breonna Taylor is he on bookstagram like he is (laughs) plugged into my life right now and I think that that part really just resonated with me because I have zero recollection of that story from my previous reading like Mm -hmm. it that was like new information to me but that really stuck out to me because it just feels like that is this moment of like white guilt and white people wanting to quote-unquote learn and to be you know and what he says about it is like he tells her no and sort of the reason he says why is because you don't get to get off the hook for being racist and being white just because you're in close proximity to black people who are doing the work. And I think that's so important. And I never really could articulate that myself and reading and reading that in the book, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's what I've been trying to say and unpack and, and articulate for the last, I don't know, 12 years. Like I wish I remembered this from before, but that part of the book really, really, really stuck out to me. Um, and I've been thinking about it a lot, even, you know, this, this week as we're recording of the election and, and seeing that 55% of white women, which is an increase from 2016 voted for Donald Trump 
again in this election. According to exit polls that are skewed this year because of mail-in ballots, blah, 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 blah. Please don't send me a DM about why you're a good white person. I just don't have the energy. But I think that, like, I kept thinking about that moment as I was watching the election returns for the last four days, including right now as we're recording. It's probably going on in the background. (laughs) Yeah. I, as we were, like, that same number was floating around in my head when I read this quote. The white woman wanted to be comfortable. She wanted to be looked upon with favor by her own kind, but she also wanted to have her pleasure. And then... The, the scene that you're talking about, absolutely, I think especially reading it this week, those those moments like jumped off the, the page to me. Like you said, Tracy, it rings true today. And today we have Google and we have <laughs> a million resources right. at people's fingertips. And yet it is still, it, it stuck out for a reason. Like, yes, right. <laughs> absolutely. Right. I, th- I think, I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot since the reread and just in general. And I think part of it is like, I mean, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that, you know, I can't speak for white women, but I think that some of it is like this desire to show the work, to like prove that you're not bad or like to prove, like, it's like you want credit for this thing, but I think that there's a disconnect because I think that the black people and, and the Latinx people, um, the brown Latinx people, not the white Latinx people, um, the Asian people, the, the Southeast Asian people, whatever, the people among you, the last thing that they want is for you to show their work and I, for you to show your work. And I think that like, for whatever reason, white people just cannot get that through their heads. And there's this like constant desire to be like, not me, not me. And I remember um, when the whole Harvey Weinstein stuff was going on. And I think it was Rebecca Solnit, but I cannot remember who started the hashtag. But there was that, um, there was like a piece that she wrote. And then people started the hashtag that was like, not all men. And all these men got so mad about, about being talked about. It was like, not all men, not all men. And like everybody else, women and, you know, the quote unquote good men, all understood why that was a terrible thing to say and how horrible that was. And yet here we are. And I, my DMs, I mean, I had to turn my DMs off today because I had so many DMs from white women telling me, not, not me. I'm not, I'm in the 45%. Ugh, I'm so disappointed. How could this happen? And it's like this need to show the work is just unbearable it's oppressive it is so I mean I'm trying to just enjoy the fact that a black woman from my hometown is about to be the vice president of our country and the last thing I want to do is have to console people and be like I know you're a good white person like also I actually don't know that I don't know you like we're friends on Instagram you follow me and like I'm glad that you're here but like I don't know you and I can't vouch for you and like sometimes I can't even vouch for my own mom you know like and mom, if you're listening, I'm not calling you a racist. Please relax. But like, <laughs> but this idea that like we can like that you can absolve yourself of this by by showing the work or by like demanding the people in your the people of color in your lives attention and you know disavowing this stuff. I think that like that little scene in the book opened up all of that that I just spewed at you guys for me. And I think like that's how powerful this book is. And like that is, I think that's why this book is so important to me 
because you both, you know, read it and you see your whiteness in a different way, but I read it and I see someone who's saying all the things that I've felt as a black person. And I see someone who is saying and, and engaging with these things that have always made me uncomfortable or how, you know, I'm feeling seen in a way that I've never felt seen in a book, you know, on my first reading. And then in a second reading, I'm feeling validated again. And, and so I think like, I'm glad that you guys were able to see your whiteness in this book. But I also feel like to me as a black person, like, I don't really care because someone finally saw me in a book and like, I like good for you. Have fun with your white thing. But like, I, I feel great. Like I finally have the language to respond to some of these people in my DMS. Like I finally have an understanding. And I think that that is what makes this book just so powerful. Yeah. I, I feel like what you just said about white probably white women in particular, like wanting that, that comfort and validation. Like I, and this goes back to your earlier point about why many teachers probably aren't ready to teach this. I think a lot of teachers, white teachers want that from their students of color. A thousand percent. Mm -hmm. I also think that most students of color and specifically black students, we know from day one, if you're down, like we know there's, you're not going to be able to fool me. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. whether it's a teacher or a friend or a coworker or whatever, like we read the room and the situation in an instant because we have to, because you know, our survival depends on it in some cases. And, and I think that like that, that like, oh, I want my students to think that I'm like woke and I'm like one of the good ones. That reeks. Like we can smell that from a mile away, you know? And like, I think that that's interesting that you say that because I've definitely had interactions or seen interactions on social media where people have been like, I teach students and so X, Y, Z. And I'm like, just because you're in proximity, like I teach at an inner city school. And just because you're in proximity to black people or to, to a large population of El Salvadorian students or a large population of, you know, Pakistani students or whatever that is, wherever your, whatever your community is, that doesn't mean that you're any less racist just because you can tolerate being around them and that you can see some form of humanity in your students. Like that is not that is such racist rhetoric and like that is so toxic and it's almost worse than just being like, I'm a little racist, you know, like it's, it's definitely mm -hmm. worse. This idea that like you get a pass because, you know, I've definitely had women say to me and men and men say to me, I'm not racist. My kids are half black. I'm like, okay, well my mom's white, like, but she still does racist things. Like I, I had to leave a family group chat this week about the election because I was so irritated with the conversation that they were having about being so confused about how white people could vote for Trump again. And I, I literally left the group chat and then my brother called me and was like, are you okay? And I was like, it just was too much. Like, I just don't need to be here. You know? So like, if you think that you're off the hook for your racist shit, because you, you teach, some black kids in Chicago or whatever the fuck, like you're not, you're just, you're just, you're not. And the fact that you even think that goes to tell me that you're really not. And then the fact that some people would even say that to me, I'm like, if you were, you would know better than to say that to me, you know? So like, I just think, 
And I don't want to let white men off the hook either. White men are, are also doing terrible, terrible things. And like white women get a bad rap because white women pretend to want to be on the side of people of color because they have had experiences of feeling marginalized by white men in the way that our patriarchy is set up. But I think that, so I think that there's like this desire from white women to want to be good allies because they wish they had good allies in other spheres. But I also feel like white women are really dangerous because they don't understand all the ways that they perpetuate white supremacy and all the ways that they perpetuate patriarchy, to be quite honest. Um, but yeah, that's a another whole nother episode, I guess, on a different book. <laughs> it, t- it could be. Um, I also think like with white women specifically, I call it the good girl complex of um and it's something that doesn't serve anybody like this does not serve white women themselves either to have this idea that they have to constantly be the good girl or be perfectionists and I think for a lot of women being the good girl they pick up an anti-racist book or they like do the work because that means that they're a good person they're they're reaching that like good girl goal But that good girl complex is rooted in white supremacy and the idea that whiteness is goodness. And when you are, when you have that so internalized um, and you're not like trying to root that out of yourself, I think that often that can be that, that like, this is just me like guessing and analyzing and also recognizing that impulse in myself. But I think that that compulsion can come from that idea that like, well, I'm good. I am good. Society tells, has told me forever and ever the messaging that I have gotten is that I am good and that being a good girl is the best thing that I can be. And it's, it's, of course, it's all tied up in white supremacy. Um, but that's, that's another factor that, um, that I definitely notice. And like, I get that knee jerk reaction sometimes. Um, but you can, you can shut up and suck up about it fellow white ladies we can shut up and we can suck it up and we can like i don't know pay attention to that talk talk to each other about it that's the thing like like i will speak to this i i've often talked about this because i don't want people to think that i'm like good at everything that is difficult to talk about like i know that i have a long way to go when it comes to non-binary and uh gender queer and transgender folks like i know that i have a history of having not good thinking and ideas about that you know in my days in college and i am doing everything that i can now to try to learn about it but like when i don't know i text my sister-in-law and we both have close friends who are non-binary, but I'll text her and be like, Hey, have you ever heard your non-binary friend talk about this? Like, what do you know about this? Or she'll text me and we'll have like hour long conversations, just like trying to figure out what the fuck we're talking about and how we can do better. And then if we still have questions, like then maybe we'll go to our non-binary friend. Like for example, as I mentioned, I have small humans who are 10 months who are going to be talking soon. And I have a non-binary friend and I reached out to them and I said, look, I don't know if you have feelings about this. Um, cause, cause my friend goes by he, them. So he's comfortable with both. And I said, I, I Googled it. I'm not sure. I want my kids to refer to adults as, you know, 
Miss Sarah or Miss Chelsea? Do you want Mr? Do you want Mix? Do you have a preference for that? You know, and I just took that to them and I said, look, they're not talking yet, but I just wanted you to let me know because I want to make sure that I do that right by you. You know, and like I Googled it, I figured out what people were doing. I looked it up, I, you know, and it was a conversation to have. And I feel like there is a balance between doing the work on your own and then also engaging in the stuff with the people around you. But I, I didn't just go to them and say, hey, what, do, what should my kids call you? Weirdo person who's different than everyone else. Like I didn't do that. I took the time to figure it out. And we actually decided that uncle was the best because we was they didn't feel that uncle was gendered. And mm-hmm. I and I also looked up that there's also some people do auntie, which is U-N-T-Y, which is a mix of auntie and uncle. So like, you know, there's there's ways to have these conversations that do engage with people. And then there's also ways to have these conversations where you're having them amongst yourself quietly and you never get credit for the work. Like my friend would never know how much time I spent talking about this or talking about other things that were confusing or unclear to me because I would never bring that to them, you know? And so I, th- I feel like that's the thing. It's like, I don't want to show my work. I just want to get, I just want to be a good girl in the sense that I ace the test in some of this <laughs> stuff, you know? I love, mm-hmm. I love the way you put that. And I'm going to, my like good girl uh, syndrome is going to come out right now and I'm going to <laughs> take us back to the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love all of these conversations so much, but actually this, I, I think one of the things this conversation reminded me of, one of the things that I loved so much about this book, I think this is like the best written example I've ever seen of somebody reflecting on the way their own ideologies developed over time and then came like into conflict and changed. I highlighted like every time he said, I've thought about this a lot and mm. why I think I did that or why I think my mom did that or why. I... And like, what a shining example of being reflective and thoughtful it's so great I mean I didn't we didn't even I can't believe we haven't talked about this at all but the fact that he's <laughs> able to like change his mind and change his his direction and his trajectory so fully it's like these like 90 degree turns all over the place like he's going one way and then he just flips it um on the episode where I talked with Mark Lamont Hill I mean, you should definitely listen to it. I do it. I did an episode with Mark. Mark's podcast is called Coffee and Books. He also did an episode on Malcolm X. Um, it came out the same week as our episode together because the week our episode came out was the 55th anniversary of the book coming out. So, and it's a book that changed his life. And yada, you can hear us talk about it, yada, yada. But one of the things that he talks about is while he's writing this book, while he's talking to Alex Haley. There is this, this, I mean, people I'm assuming have read it. So it's not really a spoiler, but I guess it's a spoiler if you don't know this person, but I'm not going to protect that from you. You should know more. (laughs) Um, But he and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, they have a rift. There's this huge break, right? And so one of the ways that the book is written is that Alex Haley really doesn't want Malcolm X to go back and edit. And so he's trying to correct the information from the beginning of the book in real time as he's writing the book. And then he dies before the book ever comes out. So he can't go back. And so you get to really see this honest, it's not refined. It's not polished. It's really like this living, breathing oral history of this moment. Obviously he, he, 
is not telling us everything. And I, there's, he's clearly protecting himself and people. And there's, you know, there's clearly a point of view about the work and about, about his life, but you get to see it as it builds. And I think that's why he goes back and says, you know, I think the reason this person did that is because he can attribute motive or, or whatever to things that he's said before people that he's praised in the past, right? He has to make it all make sense. And he's trying to figure it out as it's happening to him, as he's in fear for his life, as he's out in Mecca, as he's doing all this stuff, like he's trying to make the pieces make sense because he knows what he said before, you know, and, and, and I won't do the whole thing that Mark did, but Mark talked about the seeing of the um, Farood Muhammad, like of seeing him in the jail cell and saying that he saw him and, and the contradiction between, well, if you saw him and you knew what he looked like, then maybe he is a divine creature, but your new beliefs are saying that that's not possible. So how does he reconcile those things? And I think that's really just like an interesting part of the structure of the book and of seeing the mind of someone who's obsessed with storytelling and obsessed with narrative, try to make sense of this nonsensical narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just, and he's trying to protect himself too. He's trying to protect his image. He wants to protect his side of the story as we all do in any of these situations in any conflict. It's like, Mm -hmm. believe me, believe me. It's just, it's, it's incredible. And it's done with such, it feels like his side is fact. And that's incredible to do, especially because he died. Like, it's like he didn't get to go back and fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I And stylistically, like, you can feel the urgency pick mm-hmm. up around those mm-hmm. chapters. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think, Chelsea, the class, you read it, and it's probably, like, a perfect class for this to be able to talk about it as a master work and and piece of craftsmanship. And all, all credit to Alex Haley also, who, you know, went on to write Roots. He's one of our great storytellers as well. Like he, the two of them together, it's like such a power couple of, of storytelling. I mean, my God, like they're just incredible. They're incredible. It's incredible. And to have this, like, it sucks that there isn't this for Martin Luther King, you know, like I just wished that this existed for more of our, of our leaders who, who we think that we know, but we never really got to hear from directly. Yeah. Or that we put on a pedestal and thereby erase their humanity. Yeah. There's, this is not a pedestal kind of book. This is a, it is a little, don't you think it is? Yeah. Well, I guess so. But I, you almost also see like, Malcolm trying to put himself up, right. but like Alex Haley resisting that. So there's that in in the sense, but I I don't feel. I guess it depends on the reader. Yeah. But I felt like wow, I'm really reading a story about an imperfect man, and like those imperfections made the book all the more powerful. Um, I don't know. That's a really good question, Tracy. I'm going to have to think about that. I think he does that on purpose. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. I think that's what he wants you. He wants you to see him as an everyman. But Mm -hmm. I think that that's by design. I don't think we really see his flaws in this book. I think he lets us see what he wants us to see. Which is why it's so brilliant. Because he's Mm -hmm. like doing this. He's making claims in this book about like the way he sees the world, but told through his life story, story where he's yeah. picking and choosing what he is showing and what he's leaving out includes just enough that he he does 
show his humanity and his his flaws and but it's all so selectively done. and I I'm I feel like sometimes when I analyze nonfiction like that it sounds like I'm saying the author's being manipulative or something but it's not it's just brilliant storytelling I think he is being manipulative but I <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily bad I think there's like a negative connotation to that word sure but maybe he's not being manipulative but he is steering his audience and like yes. he wants us to not like Elijah Muhammad by the end of this book right like that we're led to believe by the end of this book that this person has multiple hits out on Malcolm X's life and Malcolm X is our hero like he is leading us he realizes at a certain point that he's got to take us somewhere like he understands this book needs needs a beginning, middle, and an end. Like he understands, he believes whether it's founded or not, he believes that he's going to be assassinated by the, by the uh, nation of Islam. Like, so I do think the manipulation and the way that he puts the story together is on purpose. And I think that it is to craft a better story. Like Mm -hmm. if I learned anything about him from this book, he wants to sell a lot of copies, <laughs> right? Like, because in his mind, he's not necessarily. He says he thinks he's going to be dead before the book ever comes out. But I also mm-hmm. think, on the flip side, he also thinks that you know he wants to go and do the book tour and be Malcolm X bestseller. You know, like I think that that is in him. Yeah, for oh sure. My gosh. When he discovers. Elijah Muhammad's infidelities. And then he goes about, you know, searching in the Bible for ways to defend him. What brilliant storytelling is that where he drops to you, the reader, like he's doing all these horrific things with with women. But I was his loyal defender. But by the time you get to the end, he's turned that on its head a little. I, it's just so right. Like he's well like exposing paced. the secrets. Mm-hmm. Like he's exposing mm-hmm them but, but he's acting like, like he is innocent and like he's yes. just do- like it's it's brilliant and yeah. it's totally manipulative <laughs> and it's fantastic it's so yeah. well done like I mean it's he's an icon for a reason like it's so iconic it is so he's it's brilliant I mean like it I don't know how other ways to say how great it is but it's great he's great Agreed. We'll just reclaim manipulative as like a positive yeah, when it comes to writing thing. nonfiction, especially. I feel like if you do it well and the audience isn't quite sure, then mm-hmm. it's good. I think mm-hmm. if you do it shitty or if you do it like with mal intentions mm-hmm. in a way to like harm others, which I guess you could argue Malcolm X is doing. I guess manipulation depends on who's the manipulator and who's being manipulated. Mm -hmm. But I definitely think there's manipulation happening in this book for sure, a thousand percent. And like, wouldn't you do the same in your own story? Yes. If you could do it that good? Yeah, totally. It it reminds me of Tim O'Brien has this quote, Mm -hmm. you know, story truth is truer sometimes than happening truth. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. The, the truth that you get from this book might be truer because of the kind of manipulations that are going into the story, like the, the truth yes. that you retain. A thousand percent. Malcolm X is a genius. There's a reason why this book is a classic. Like I just think when I think classic and what will live on for decades and decades, this book, it's a classic in every sense of the word. And I think it's rare that we get a classic work of nonfiction because most of the books that we consider classics are fiction. But like you both articulated so well, the power of story is universal. So 
it's incredible, but I would love to move us on to some pairings. So this is the part of the show where we offer a couple of contemporary reads that feature some similar themes to our core text. So Tracy, do you have a book or two or however many to recommend to read alongside the autobiography of Malcolm X? I have like a million. Yes. I do want to Nonfiction <laughs> queen. You're yes. a nonfiction queen. I, so I do have a bunch. I do want to say one last thing before we get to the pairings, which is yeah. one of the things I think is super interesting about this book being like kind of this iconic text, especially from the civil rights movement, is that he was a civil rights leader and a figure, but I think so much of the work that was done in the South with like Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, Rosa Parks, um, you know, with, with that whole movement in the South, it's just interesting that his text is the one that will probably live on from that moment. And like that there isn't a quintessential book that everyone, you know, quote unquote has to read from that region mm. in that time. There's lots of books that are that should be read, but I just think it's so interesting that like he's his is the one. Mm. And I don't know. I mean, I do know why sort of, but I also think it's I just it's fascinating to me. Um okay, book pairings. So my first book pairing is the most obvious book pairing. It's called Malcolm X: A Life of Reinvention by Manning Marable. It won the um Pulitzer Prize, I believe, in 2011 or 12, uh, the year the book came out, obviously. Manning Marable actually died the day after the book came out, the day before the book came out, that week. Um, but it is an incredible biography of Malcolm X, and it definitely takes him off the pedestal. It kind of explains him more. It's very long. It's very nonfiction. It is so, 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 so good. Um so if you want to learn more about him and kind of see the ways that his story maybe converges or diverges from his own telling, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's sort of a literal book pairing. Um, there's a new book about Malcolm X that is out now called The Dead Are Arising, which I have not read yet. I've heard it's great. I've heard it's very long. Um, it's by Les Payne and his daughter, Tamara Payne, who also, Les Payne died in the writing of this book. So there's this weird Malcolm X dying in the writing of the book thing that I don't quite understand, but it freaks me out. And You um, should write a book about that one day. No, because I don't want to die. <laughs> what are you saying? Hello? <laughs> Um, okay, just stay away from it. Far but, away. But yeah, so I haven't read that one yet, but I've heard it's great. It's up for the National Book Award as of recording for nonfiction, so we'll see. Um, so th those are like very obvious literal recommendations. I also would, of course, suggest Heavy by Kiese Lehman. I think it's brilliant. I think he's brilliant. No surprise. I was described the other day as a Kiese Lehman super fan, and I was like, okay, it's true, but also, like, I also am a host of a podcast and a whole other thing. I was like offended, <laughs> but also proud of my brand as Kiese super fan. Um, so I would suggest that book because. I think it pairs well. I don't know. Do I have to say more about why I think it pairs well? I just think no, it does. Trust you. Okay. <laughs> I think it does. I think another book that pairs well um, is Men We Reaped by Jessamyn Ward. Um, again, it's about young black men dying in America. Um, it's incredible. I, another one of our – I mean, I'm listing, like, some of our greatest writers, period – so I think those are really good pairings. I think, you know, James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time is great. I think that there 
there's so many books that pair with this book because this book, Malcolm X does so much. Oh, so there's another new book out called The Sword and the Shield. It's by Peniel Joseph. Fact check that someone. I think that's the same. I know his first name is Peniel. Um, and it is about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and how they're they were actually more similar than we're taught. Mm -hmm. And that also came out this year. I have not read it. My husband read it and loved it though. He would warn you. There are not very many chapters and the chapters are very long and there are not very many page breaks. And if you're like me, you love a break. There's none of those little dashes in the middle of the page, which I know. So just wrap your head around it. He said, it's great. Uh, Peniel Joseph also wrote the book on Stokely Carmichael. So that's another book that would be another pairing that now my husband is currently reading. Also, same thing. Not a lot of chapters, not a lot of page breaks. He's an academic. Deal with it. It's probably <laughs> still great. Um, well, maybe so those are a, good on audio for audiobook listeners. Yeah, they might like be. Nonfiction. They might be. I actually don't know if the Stokely book is on audio because I'm, I'm fairly confident but not certain that it is published by an academic press mm -hmm. so I'm not sure I mean he's he's a professory type like it's like real yeah. it's some real nonfiction. um I will put one more book out into the world that everyone knows that I love that is more loosely tied to this less of a literal pairing which is um Blood in the Water by Heather Ann Thompson about the Attica prison uprising it takes place in 1971 and so it's sort of a nice pairing because it takes you a little bit after the death of Malcolm X to kind of see his work and his teaching and how it played out. Um, it's after the start of the Black Panther Party. Uh, it's connected to the Soledad brother. Like there's just, it's just, there's a lot in it about kind of how the civil rights movement progressed after the death of both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And it's, it's incredible. It also won the Pulitzer. It's one of my all-time favorites trigger warning or whatever people say for um violence and um lots of it so just a heads up on that one i, I really think need to read that one. i know i i've heard you mention it it mm. is so incredible <laughs> yeah. just i it's long just please read it i i have yet to recommend it to someone who didn't like it except my brother was mad because i did not warn him that there was a lot of graphic violence okay but well, he also loved warned. it yeah, don't blame me. <laughs> it happened. It's nonfiction. It happened. Like, I get it. But, like, it's not like it's just gratuitous violence. These things happened. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I added a ton of books to my list, I think. Mm -hmm. I think Blood in the Water, though, it's got to be, like, first. Because I've heard you talk about it enough that it's just time. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, Tracy, have you read Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston? Yes, I have. That's one I was thinking would be a cool pairing for this, mostly because of the storytelling structure and how she interviewed, um, Kudjo Lewis for like three months and then put this together and it's told like through his first person narrative, but she's kind of editing and mm -hmm. structuring it in the way she wanted. Um, so just in terms of storytelling structure I thought that was a really might be a cool pairing also this book that I read for um the Aspen Words submissions that I was reading but I it came out this year but I haven't seen real I haven't seen it around Pale by Edward A. Farmer hmm. um it is fiction but it is it takes place in 1966 it takes place at this farm 
former plantation owned by a white couple and it's told through the perspective of this woman named Bernice. She is out of a job. Her brother asks her to, you know, come work with him. And this place, this is just like twisted. Like you can just like it's just ominous throughout mm-hmm. the whole book. You're worried about Bernice and what is going on in this place. And then um, one of the other black servants has her two teenage sons come back to work. And the the white woman who owns this plantation, it's a farm now, this kind of awakens this, like, vengeful side of her. She's lost a child. She hates the fact that Silva has two living sons. And she just, like, exerts this evil, vengeful plan. And I think this book as a work of fiction, does a really good job of portraying, like, the insidiousness of, of whiteness and the, the kind of treachery and vengeance of it. But also, the whole thing's told through Bernice's perspective, who is on the outside, but part of this place, and she's kind of filtering what you see and what you don't see and 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 whose story she's focusing on. Ooh, it's creepy <laughs> and good. <laughs> When Tracy mentioned sort of like that, the interesting fact that like we have this iconic text from Malcolm X and then a lot of our other really well-known civil rights leaders, like we don't have the same kind of like classic in our hands. It was, it made me think of Claudette Colvin, Twice Towards Justice by Philip Hoos. Have you heard of this book, Tracy? I have heard of the book, yes, but I've not read it. think you need it for the mini stacks bookshelf okay because it's something that you could read to them now but I, I think like maybe even as early as eight but definitely by like 10 or 11 this text is super accessible for kids and it's the story of Claudette Colvin who at 15 years old basically did the first bus boycott and refused to give up her seat on the bus to a white passenger But because she was 15 and she was also pregnant, the movement basically decided that, like, she should not be the face of this thing. And so Rosa Parks stepped in instead. But Claudette Colvin is, I I mean, I don't think she's in history textbooks. Maybe there are one or two. And Philip Hoos, I think, does a great job of telling her story. He interviewed her and she worked on the book with him. And it tells, like, the story of the larger civil rights movement as well. Um, And then she also played a significant role in some legislation as a key witness. So her story is really incredible. And I like that that's just, like, super accessible middle grade text. But I would love to see an adult nonfiction book about her. Um, And then I was also, I just started listening to Punching the Air by Ibi Zaboy and Yusef Salam on audio. And in, so I haven't finished this, but I, I'm really loving it so far. But in the book, the the narrator says that his lawyer, and the narrator is a, a boy who is sent to jail. Um, he says that his lawyer gave him the autobiography of Malcolm X to read, like to pass the time. And the narrator says, like, this lawyer didn't know that I already read it. I devoured it. And I actually think that uh, Tupac 
is better and like that his life resembles Malcolm X. And he just starts drawing all of these comparisons and talking about sort of like, you know, someone making the assumption that he hadn't read the autobiography of Malcolm X before and he had and that he was proud of that and that he loved the book. So um, I'm really enjoying that. And then there's a really great graphic novel that was co-written by uh, Malcolm X's daughter and Kekla Magoon. It's a Coretta Scott King Award winner. It's called X, a novel, and it's a graphic novel for like middle grade young adults and does a really good job of sort of taking the autobiography and turning it into a graphic novel and um, maybe making it more accessible for teens so that 17 year olds aren't like all of us picking up the book and being like, this is long and the words are small, right, Tracy? Yeah. Wait, okay, I have to add one more book to mine because I thought that you were going to say one that I was going to say, Chelsea, but I was going to let you have it because I had a lot. But oh, I yeah, feel yeah. like we can't not say um, Saeed Jones's How We Fight for Our Lives. Um, I know. It's I such took that one off my list, but I shouldn't have. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> well, I had it on my list. And then when I saw your list, because I, I, I didn't submit a list because, you know, I'm a rule breaker or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but I, when I first thought, when you first asked me about this show, that was the first book that popped into my head. So I feel like I have to say it because that was my first, aside from the Manning Marable, that was like my first instinct. Um, it's so good. It's his memoir. And he is black and queer. And it's about finding himself, but also racism and violence. And it's just, and his mom. And it's just so fucking good it's so good um so yeah read that too all right well that's a lot of books <laughs> and this is we always you know when we talk about classics we're often like oh you know if you don't want to read this classic here are some great pairings that have similar themes but in this case I feel like we're also saying like this is a great classic yes. pick it up I also I listened to some of it on audio um it's the only new available- audio uh, yes. The one with Lawrence Fishburne? Yes. It's very well done. It's only available on Audible, and it doesn't have the Alex Haley epilogue, which oh. seems like a crime. Yeah. So, it, it, I mean, it's great. I highly recommend it, but if you do pick it up that way, you also want this book for your shelves and so you can read the Alex Haley epilogue afterwards. Yeah. Can I just say one more thing before we go? I just have to say this. Of course. Um, I'm really honored that you guys asked me to be here and I had a really good time. But if you guys ever do Shakespeare again, can you bring me back? Because all I want to do is talk about Shakespeare with someone. And I know it's a classic. And I know you guys did Romeo and Juliet. And I had a lot of thoughts. And I would do any of them. And I'm rereading all the Shakespeare plays. So I will be ready to go. But I just, I no one ever asked me to talk about Shakespeare. And all I want to do is talk about Shakespeare. So just, I'm inviting oh my myself gosh. back. Yes. Yeah, I love Shakespeare. I was a theater a theater and major in college, and I spent a year doing classical theater, and all we did was Shakespeare. And I love, oh, you know which one I love? I love Winter's Tale. My God, I love Winter's Tale. Um, I, I love Midsummer. I mean, I know them all. I love them all. Yeah. I mean, I don't love them all. Some of them are horrible. But, <laughs> I, like, I was devastated that I was not invited to do Romeo and Juliet, so I just want to just put it out there <laughs> that I can, I can talk about, like, anti-racism and stuff, but I can also talk about Shakespeare and I could just really go off for like years I can pretty much do any of them but I would prefer not to do Love's Labor's Lost because I think it's a garbage play okay that's all we well this is also Tracy this is the first time we've had a guest on to actually talk about a specific classic with us oh interesting but we didn't now, mean to box you out of the Shakespeare conversation. Yeah, we don't I mean, mean to, yeah, at you all. You guys are the only but other now. people who ever, like, I think even consider Shakespeare. So 
Well, I'm available. I'm I'm around. I'm available. I'm quarantined <laughs> in my home. I don't go anywhere. So just let me know. And I am ready to talk Shakespeare and iambic pentameter and the whole thing. I'm really, I'm really glad I, yeah. you said something. And now that we have that in mind, we're probably going to prioritize some Shakespeare. Yes. <laughs> I love it. That makes me very excited. Me too. Um, okay, before we wrap all of this up and go camp out in front of our TVs and watch election coverage, Tracy, we barely touched on the stacks in your podcast and oh. all of the amazing things that you do. So let's make sure that we like go over that so people know where to find you and what the stacks is and like what those episodes are like. So in your words, can you tell us about the stacks and what you do for your podcast? Okay. So the stacks is a podcast about books and people who read them. Um, And it's me. I am the host alone. um, And I have a guest. So the way that the show is formatted at this point is every month, the first week of the month, the first Wednesday of the month, I have a guest. That guest and I talk about their taste in reading and kind of whatever it is that they do, whether they're an author or a musician or whatever, we talk about their world and then we talk about their taste in reading. And then that same person comes back the last week of the month and that's the book club episode where that same person and I discuss a book that we've both read. In between, the weeks in between, I do author interviews. Um, So there's usually two author interviews a month. If for some reason there's a third Wednesday in the month, I try to throw in something fun. So like one time I was the guest because my birthday was on a Wednesday and there was an extra Wednesday. Normally it's just an author and we talk about kind of the process of the book that came into the world. Sometimes there are spoilers on the final episode of the week and I will always tell you in the intro and in the show notes if there are spoilers Um, because I don't like to be spoiled, but I also don't like to be told to read a book and then nobody talks about like, that they die in the end or whatever. You know, I'm like, hello, I read this book. Like, let's talk about the ending. So that's the podcast. And yeah, it's everywhere you get your podcasts. Just search The Stacks. You can find me on Instagram at The Stacks Pod. You can find me on Twitter at The Stacks Pod underscore. The Stacks has a Facebook, but I hate Facebook. But you can find us at facebook.com slash The Stacks Podcast. But everything I post there, I also just post on Instagram. So just follow me on Instagram because I really, Facebook is the worst and it's a nightmare. Anyways, um, and the website, (laughs) thestackspodcast.com. Hello. And when does this episode come out? Uh, November 17th. That's my mom's birthday. Well, and it doesn't matter because tomorrow, so when you guys have this, the Stacks will have merch. And so you guys can get merch yes, by going I to got the stacks. Your email yeah, today. It's very I was so excited about that email, and yeah. I'm really excited to. Yeah. So a buy stacks some stacks shirt merch. or sweatshirt or something. Yeah. There's all sorts of good stuff out there. You can go there now if you go to the stackspodcast.com/shop. You'll be able to find stacks mm. stuff, and I think some of it's really cute. I mean, I think all of it's cute, but I think some of it's like really cute, and I'm really excited about it. <laughs> and and you can support Tracy and the stacks on Patreon. And if you do that, you get a little discount on the merch, which is awesome. That's true. That's true. And you can join Tracy for monthly 
book club conversations on Google Hangouts and get to actually talk with her live about these books. Yeah. So yeah, if you're a patron, you we do a monthly virtual book club, which is fun. Um, and yeah, you get discounts and whatever. And also, it's just a nice thing to do for people whose work you like. I, you know, shout out to that. Also, you know, I'll say this for the ladies of the Novel Pairing podcast and for myself. Please subscribe, rate, and review and like everything that we do because it seems like such a little thing and it really is a little thing. It doesn't cost any money. It's super easy to do, but it makes a huge, 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 huge difference for all the work we do. So you know, if you're looking for ways to support people who do stuff that you don't pay for, a great way to support them is just to follow their directions when they tell you to subscribe, rate, <laughs> review. So easy. It's so easy. Just your review can literally be like, love the podcast. That's it. But it helps us. And then people find our show. And then we're able to like take that and like pitch ourselves out to get great guests and all that kind of stuff. So that's my spiel. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. This was, I mean, this is such a bright spot in my week in general, but I was just really excited to like talk with you face to face through the computer. (laughs) This is always really fun when we get to meet the people that we've interacted with online. So thank thank you you guys for having me. Thank you so much. This was such a treat. It was such a treat and I'm glad we have a plan to make it happen again soon. Shakespeare. Well, listeners, we cannot wait to hear all about your experiences with the autobiography of Malcolm X and do what Tracy says. <laughs> Tell us that you're listening to the podcast, rate, review, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod for news announcements and bonus book recommendations. Thank you to Michelle Timmons for her assistance and to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with our quarterly wrap-up episode. Until then... We declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.